0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 21st, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
2: Good evening, folks. What up?
1: Kara is still at class or something tonight. She's going to be joining us a little bit later. Uh, She says she's really getting crushed this semester in her PhD studies.
2: Mm, That'll do it.
1: But she's still going to make time for us. Just going to be joining us a little late. So, Steve,
3: how's the house drying out? It's terrible. What's the latest? Oh, my God.
1: Well, we've had fans and dehumidifiers running 24 hours a day for the last week. And then a couple days ago, they started the destruction phase. They basically gutted our kitchen. Yep. You gotta so take
4: pictures, man. Take pictures. I want to see this. Yeah, it's so like Steve half the floors ripped not off.
1: Take pictures. Come on. <laughs> the wall is torn down. Yeah, you know, we don't have. We don't have a sink. We don't have access to our kitchen. Basically, it's terrible. Whoa.
2: Yeah. That's and
4: then, tough. then
1: all the shit they took out of the kitchen, they put in our family room. So we don't really have access to that room either.
2: Oh my it's god. A little, <laughs> it's a little yeah, inconvenient. Yeah, you probably lost. What thirty three percent of your house through all of this, one yeah. way or the other?
1: <laughs> it's terrible. Like you know, think about it, you know what you use your home for. The kitchen is like the core functionality of your house, right? Oh I mean, yes, it's where most of the stuff happens. I mean, if your bedroom is out of commission, hey, you sleep on the couch. You know, your kitchen's out of commission, you can't use your house.
3: I, I spend. You, I mean, I think you're right. In an odd way, like it's you know eighty five ninety percent of my time is in the kitchen, and most of it is cooking and cleaning. I just realized that my life is mostly cooking and cleaning. <laughs> <laughs>
5: well,
3: oh my God. You know, there's something to be said for that.
2: <laughs> oh my God. My son. Especially keeping clean. It's because
3: of my son. You make something and he wants something else. And now we just told him, nope, that's it. If you don't like what we made for dinner, you're going to bed hungry. And you know what happened? He did it like once and then he eats whatever we make for dinner now.
2: Right. It's like what Data said to his uh, cat Spot once. He says, "Perhaps hunger will compel you to try it." <laughs> 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 Steve, what's the update
3: on SGU Studio? It's dry. It's dry and in complete disarray. All right, I you will be didn't... there tomorrow to put it all back yeah. together. Oh, yeah, okay, just, just and that's what?
1: We... Yeah, I mean, a couple hours down there to get it back together.
3: Well, don't kid yourself. We got to figure out what got totaled, you know, because we haven't even turned anything on yet. So we're, we just want the, everything to have like a good week to dry out. Now I get to get down there and see what the hell.
2: Is really going on. Yeah, yeah. Get those electrons flowing. Yep. Speaking of disasters.
1: <laughs> yeah, Evan? What, what
2: happened? <laughs> Speaking, of, Well, I won't. Okay, I can't really call it a disaster because it was actually quite a memorable night I, I had with, with uh, my daughter in New York City. I took my daughter to go see a concert in New York City this past weekend. The name of the band is called August Burns Red. This is a metalcore core band so mm-hmm. for lack of a better term it's heavy metal but it's a lot of low growling and grunting sort of that really angry sounding music very intense Is that's what your daughter's kind of, into these days this is what she's into these days i know you guys haven't spoken to her lately but she's you know developed quite a quite a new taste in music in metal just the last core, few, huh? last few months yes so i got the bright idea to take her to this so we go this is this past saturday night in new york city we have a plan Okay, we yep. go in with a plan. We're like, all right, because we the we wa- plan. We watched footage, you know, online of what these concerts are like, and of course, there's mosh pits and there's people body surfing all over the crowd and stuff. And these are very intense, intense concerts. We have it. We have a plan. Okay, when we get inside, we're going to stick sort of to the outside, kind of close to the doors, close to the exits. We don't get really near the melee. We're just going to, and maybe towards the back as well. That way, you know, we can escape easily in case things go sour or bad or whatever. Okay. That's our plan going in. We get there, 5 o'clock. Rachel, let's go have some dinner. Nope, she wants to stand in line uh, with the other people in line who have already waiting. And this is out in the snow in New York City. So we wait in line for two for, for just about two hours to get in. All right, fine, we did that. We get inside. They're letting people in. All right, Rachel, remember the plan, right? Okay, what does she do? She gets into the, uh, into the uh, auditorium, the general admission area, goes right to the front. Front and center, right up against the iron metal barrier that is right between where the crowd be- where the crowd ends and the stage begins, so so much for our plan of staying to the outside and away from it all. The plan total bust so she 's up there she 's thrilled, and the band start you know and the bands all start and they 're playing and it 's getting crazier and crazier as sort of the night progresses with each of these groups as, as they come on. My job was to protect Rachel by bracing myself up against the barrier with two arms, and she's kind of between my two arms in front of me, and I have the weight of the whole crowd, 2,000 people behind me, pressing up against me, shoving me left, right, forward, and every which way. At the same time, there are stage, these are these body surfers, these people who ride the crowd, you know, and they're coming over the top of us and landing down in front of us. And when you are center uh, of these crowds and stuff, you're taking basically the brunt of it. Legs are swinging, you're getting kicked in the head and everything else. She's having Sounds grand, awesome. She's having a grand old time <laughs> as I'm protecting her. I'm taking this beating like I've not taken a beating in a long time. Well, by the end of, by the, the August Burn, Burns Red was the last act. They come on. This is about two and a half hours into the show. We've been on our feet now for like five hours going into our six hours of standing up. I'm exhausted, physically exhausted. I start to get lightheaded. Uh, You know that sensation you get when – I don't know if you guys have ever come close to passing out or had that sensation. Like you know you're ready to go down. Well, I got it. And there was still about 20, 30 minutes left in the concert. I'm like – and I said, Rachel, we got to go because I'm about to pass out. I'm literally going to fall down and go unconscious right now. And she just looks at me. She says, Dad, you go. I'm staying. (laughs) I don't know what came over me, but – I decided, okay, I'm just going to let her stay, and she's just going to have to, you know, take Pinned her chances. Herself. Yeah. I barely, and I mean barely, got out of there. I would have fallen down if it wasn't so pa- t- uh, pa- packed so tightly that I was kind of bouncing off of people as I was wake- making my way outside, where I finally oh got a chance God. to get down to the floor. I didn't pass out. Grabbed a bottle of water, and I sort of, you know, prevented myself from absolutely falling unconscious, hitting my head, and who knows what else. Um, long story short is that Rachel was in there. She enjoyed the end of the show. You know, she had a little interaction even with the band. They gave her a drumstick. They, uh, you know, were cool. smiling at her. She got to she got to meet the drummer and stuff. So she had an absolute blast, and I almost died. So that was my adventure this past weekend going to the metalcore concert with with Rachel. Damn.
3: Oh, my God, Evan.
2: I survived, though.
3: Man, talk about two people having a completely different <laughs> night that were within three <laughs> yeah. feet of each other. Like, oh, my God.
2: <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, Rachel took a, took a couple glances to the head. Nothing too bad. Uh, but, you know, she. But again, she, she was absolutely thrilled and loved it. And she wants to go back for more. And I have to figure out if, if I'm <laughs> capable of going back for more someday. But we'll see.
1: You have to get her into a different genre of music.
2: Well, she likes several genres. She just happens to be particular about this one right right now is what is grabbing her interest but she does like lots of different genres of music and thank goodness for that cuz i don't think i could survive this being sort of a you know, <laughs> all through her teens just going to these right. sorts of shows uh so thank you for letting me vent that i, I, yeah. I felt Yeah you have was to
1: make important. a deal with her you concerts where you can sit down there have to be seats
2: yeah yeah i think going forward that'll probably That's a good be be the be the I, way I
1: took uh, I took Julia and her friends matter. to – well, it helped. I took uh, the girls and their friends to a Muse concert last summer, which – you guys familiar with Muse? They're a British sure. sort of mm-hmm. heavy metal band, but very good actually. I actually like their music a lot. That was a great concert. I was co- quite comfortable sitting in my chair <laughs> the whole time. That's oh, the yeah. way. That's the way to the, see a concert. Not being crushed up see. against an iron grate, standing up for six hours. Forget oh my that. gosh! And if
2: anyone wants to see footage of the show, just put, go to YouTube. Type in August Burns Red, Irving Plaza, New York City. You'll come. You'll see the footage from February seventeenth. I don't know that you can make me out in the front, you know, uh, from what you see, but you'll get the sense of how crowded and how insane it was, and what a real atmosphere it, it just was
4: it's funny Liz, Liz and I had the uh, kind of a medium experience we saw Noel Gallagher in Boston and he's fantastic and there were seats but we didn't sit down nobody sat down for a couple hours but he uh but it was it was fun uh and yeah he, uh, he's 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 good man
2: he's really good uh Oasis fame right yes yeah. yes the worst
3: concert I went to from like the crowd perspective was a Lollapalooza concert. Yes, I know what that feels like, Evan, when you're in a hostel, like your body is being physically moved, like the tide is pulling you type of thing. Oh, yeah. And you can't get out. And it, I remember I was like trying to help this girl get out of the crowd because she was getting crushed and I wasn't. And I was like the, the way that she was going to survive. But conversely... The absolute friendliest concert I ever went to was a reggae concert on Martha's Vineyard. It was just as crowded. I had to go to the bathroom, and I literally walked straight in a straight line in the direction I wanted to go to, and the crowd moved around me like water you know what i mean like they were not Mm -hmm. it was amazing i remember like it occurred to me like i literally didn't touch one person everyone's dancing and you know just just as crowded and crazy but there was no
2: aggression i guess i don't know so and it's not like there were bad people at the concert you know being jerks and everything it's just what it is that it, it it's just the genre and actually people were quite nice we were speaking to them and having nice conversations between the sets um and nobody was being disrespectful or too, too unruly. But when the music gets started, that's it. People just—it's like festival their frenzy. They go crazy. Festival. festival! They, they
1: just go
4: crazy. <laughs> I saw those kids. <laughs> oh my
1: God. Oh, All right, gosh. Bob. Get us started with Forgotten Superhero of Science.
4: Yes, for this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science, I'm going to talk about Oscar Michaud, 1884 to 1951. He was the first mainstream black movie maker. He wrote, directed, and produced 44 films starting a a century ago as a pioneer. I can't help but think he helped lay the groundwork for the phenomenal success of movies like Black Panther, which you should see. It's a ton of fun. Ton of fun, and I, I wanted to to cover Oscar this week partly in, in homage to the incredible success of Black Panther, directed by Ryan Coogler. Um, it's um, it really is breaking all records. Uh, second best four day opening of all time with a, with almost a quarter of a billion. Uh, the best Monday ever, best Monday ever at the domestic box office, and and wow. record after record. So uh, I can't help but think that Oscar actually had a hand in some of this in in some way. Uh, so Michaud was a, a pioneering author and filmmaker. Nineteen nineteen. He created his own movie production company, uh, the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, and uh, he's considered the first major African-American feature filmmaker. Ah, uh, he wrote and produced and directed an, an impressive forty-four films. Think about that. I mean, p- people do that to this day, but it's not that common anymore. Wrote, produced, and directed, and forty-four films—that's just almost unheard of. I think, uh, like uh, the Homesteader in nineteen nineteen, and a uh, a sound feature-length film, The Exile in nineteen thirty-one, and he uh, successfully made the transition from silent movies to the sound to sound uh, talkies. Uh, which I don't think was was incredibly common. I mean, that's a, imagine that's a tough transition. Um, and to top it off, he also wrote seven novels, one of which was a national bestseller. So an amazing guy. Look him up. Maybe uh, some of his movies are are online. Some of them have survived. Uh, so remember, Oscar Michaud uh, watches movies. Mention him to your friends. Perhaps when discussing block booking, the the 180-degree rule, or perhaps non-diegetic sound. Diegetic? Non diegetic yes. sound. Yes, okay. that is sound that that is sound that really wouldn't be on the scene if you were there, like say the music or a voiceover. That's non mm-hmm, diegetic sound. Cool. Diegetic sound would be people speaking or cars crashing. That's kind of what you would expect to, to hear if you were actually there. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Why don't you just say Jay, that?
3: Jay
1: and I are familiar with the, <laughs> the 180 degree rule because we we broke it. I, I figured you would be relentlessly right. yep. in our first videos until you we know, were. We weren't, we weren't <laughs> supposed to do that. Don't we cross the line. <laughs> to do yep. that. I think Craig Good taught us about the 180 degree rule. We're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 and, if you're, and Phil, if you're Phil flipping. And Phil Hudson, if you're flipping the camera angle between like two people having a conversation, the camera should never go beyond 180 degrees. Otherwise, the audience gets confused about the relative position of the two people. Unless, of course, you're Stanley Kubrick and you deliberately (laughs) break the rule in The Shining in order (laughs) to suggest that these two characters are linked in some kind of mystical way. All right. Uh (laughs) Got to know the rules before you can break the rules. We didn't know. Yes, a good we do. point right <laughs> all right Jay tell yeah. us about Elon Musk's now he now he has a plan to for <laughs> satellite broadband what's this guy doing now what's he Gosh, up to? he's busy.
3: well I love I love finding out like all of a sudden you know hey Elon Musk's SpaceX is uh, is gonna develop he's developing a, a system of satellites that's going to provide the world with broadband you know like what else is this guy doing nice. that we don't know about you know, so the more I learn about Elon and SpaceX, just the more I love and love and love this company. SpaceX is, like I said, now trying to compete with the biggest telecom companies in the world. They're going to launch thousands of satellites that will provide broadband globally, and it's called Starlink. Thousands? Yep. As we record this show, the Falcon 9 rocket is likely to launch tomorrow, February 22, 2018, and it's carrying two test satellites, among other things. It's carrying two test satellites that are, that are the very beginning of the Starlink project. The satellites are called Microsat 2A and Microsat 2B. So, oh, one Starlink. Yeah, they're they're small. They only weigh about 900 pounds.
2: Relatively small.
3: That that is actually very small for a satellite.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want a nano set. <laughs> Once Starlink
3: is fully deployed, it'll have upwards of ten thousand low orbit satellites delivering five G broadband globally. So let me give you the details. Oh, wow. So other companies have tried to do this similar type of thing, and other companies are currently trying to do something similar as well. But SpaceX seems far and away the leader in this. You know, they're calling it a new industry, even though like there's been attempts for. I think well over a decade and big companies uh, that that are trying but SpaceX is is launching and saying that they're going to have phase 1 completed in 2019. As reported by the FCC, there are about 15.2 million Americans that don't have any broadband service. This includes basic internet and mobile. And that's wow. horrible. Could you imagine you know you're in the Midwest somewhere or You know, on land that just doesn't have any coverage at all. and The companies are not wiring internet to you either. You just don't have any ability to get on the internet. I think if it's priced right, SpaceX is sitting on its most lucrative venture by far. And I think this one is it. Really? Yep.
1: Yeah, so it's going to be 5G everywhere, just blanketing the planet.
4: Yeah, but by the time they get up there, why not just shoot for the stars and say, oh, yeah, like 7G. I mean, 5G is going to be a thing of the past by the time there are a thousand satellites. Well, it's Bob, I to like to told
3: you, man. Phase 1, 2019. Now, largely that SpaceX is intending their, their initial audience to be these 15.2 million Americans that don't have access. And then they were also saying that they could cover about 10%, I think, of the total internet traffic. And they would be focusing that on cities that are overcrowded. And if you like, let's say you live in New York City, and because of the how crowded it is and how used the broadband is, you just don't get access. Well, they're, they're providing further access to the internet so you can get off of one of the main companies. So the detailed plans are this. SpaceX will launch 4,425 satellites in 2019. The system is said to be able to start functioning with as little as 800 satellites in orbit, and they will be around 700 miles above the Earth. That's considered a low Earth orbit. Yeah. According to the FCC, Starlink is going to be able to offer broadband speeds similar to fiber optic networks. Now, I know that, that 5G five G is not that claim, but I did read that, and that's what they're saying. And I, I did some calculations, and mm-hmm. this could be somewhere in the range of 1,000 megabits per second, where I'm getting right now about 100 megabits per second with my super expensive pay-through-the-nose internet connection. By one mm-hmm. one of the companies that you know, I hate. <laughs> so I'm not crystal clear when they say 5G. That might be the limit on mobile, and maybe if it's to your PC, it could be much more than that. It could be on the, the fiber optic level. I don't know, but that's what the that's what is being said by the FCC. What about upload? According to the information I read, it's going to be an infinitely better than say a. Dish, you know, that you would have on your house. Well, it's I wouldn't a, say infinite. For, for the sake of this, it's going to be you know as good as what you get with a wired connection. From what they're saying, I mean, think about they're saying that yeah. they're, it's going to be you know fiber optic styled connectivity. So who knows? Elon said that Starlink could provide five G like service. Uh, to billions of people globally. He said it could also help provide internet, like I said, to those in congested areas. But mostly what he's saying is this is going to be wonderful for for people who live in poor regions around the world. And this could be giving a lot of people their first internet connectivity ever wow mm-hmm. so i think that's wonderful i mean this guy you know i haven't read anything negative about elon yet i mean i've heard i've read people with negative interpretations of things or whatever but he seems like someone that really cares and someone that's trying to incite a lot of growth in technology as I said with um you know with the Falcon nine heavy he 's telling other companies join me uh, compete with me let 's do it let's let 's make this an industry let's let 's move forward so i I bet you that very similarly he 's doing that here, so they also said there 'll be twenty months of testing. Uh, these 900-pound satellites. Along Now, this is how it works. They have, they're going to have the 900-pound satellites. The first two are going up. Then they're going to continue to make more launches. Then there's going to be six fixed-position stations on Earth and three mobile stations across the U.S. And I guess these mobile stations are going to be in vans, and I don't know why they need to be mobile. I couldn't find any details about that. Now, I found out something else I love about this circumstance. Google's parent company, Alphabet, has invested a billion dollars in this venture. What? I like that. Yep. I like
2: that. Whoa. How,
3: how's that for an investment? I can't tell you guys how happy it makes me to see, You know, would you still call SpaceX a relatively new company? It's new-ish. I can't tell you how awesome it is to to have them go head-to-head with these billion-dollar companies that are without getting into the whole net neutrality situation. This is only what I would consider to be something good for the open market. So, man, Elon Musk is really kicking ass over here. But I think really if he does price this correctly, if he doesn't come out with it being too expensive, if it's affordable and the service is good, I would very happily abandon paying one of these other companies that have done nothing but take my money and not improve the infrastructure. And if they have, I haven't seen any difference. All I see is that they keep trying to raise the price of my service that I'm paying. So I bid SpaceX huge uh, good fortune in this venture. Man, I really hope that they – this. Kill it. I hope that they, it, this thing works exactly the way that they planned and they roll it out in the next couple of years and you could, you could just be on your mobile device and just pick what company you want to provide your service from.
1: Yeah, I think we totally need to completely disconnect devices from providers. You know what I mean? Yep. You should get whatever device you want and use it with any service you want and they should just be competing on quality and price. Yeah. Yeah, and this is this. this kind of system is good cuz there isn't this like oh who's paying for the last mile of cable, you know what I mean? There's no cable. It's all in the airwaves, you know.
3: Yeah, oh, and other gosh. other interesting things like, you know, you go to a foreign country, maybe you don't have to um, you know, buy a local burner anymore, you know, or or pay your company a, a whole ton of money just so you could be in Europe. Yeah, you know, global I, I, service. Yep.
1: That would be awesome.
3: And oh, full boy. coverage, Steve. Full coverage! You full know what coverage! I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's that's amazing. You could be standing on a mountaintop and, and have cell service.
2: And this will be some people's first broadband experience, or you know, even internet experience. Mine was what? A 7,200 baud, yeah. funky thing that sounded like a broken fax machine and six minutes to download a picture. Oh, man. There was something very fun
3: and romantic about those times. I mean, of course, we could never go back, but it was really cool, you know, watching the internet come alive in those days and and seeing steady increases in processor power and, you know, the speed of your connectivity. And then switching from, like, the pre-smartphone to the smartphone. My God, that was amazing. What a leap! Ooh. Good luck, man. I, I just, I just hope this thing comes out swinging from the as soon as they start doing it. All right, guys, have you ever
1: heard of Super Brain Yoga?
3: No. Is it hot like hot oh yoga? What God. do you do? No, it's
1: even Sounds dumber. Like
2: a food, super food. But
1: I may have spoken about this before, but there's a. Uh, I wrote an updated article about it because um, someone left a comment on my article about it on Neurologica from 2015. And he said, "Oh, you should research a topic before you call it a hoax." And then he pro- <laughs> he provided four links to studies from 2016 and 2017. Okay. See the uh, see the problem there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. you should have known in
4: the future, <laughs> yes, <what laughs> <sort> of, <laughs> oh, you should have <laughs> account for these
1: studies that came out after you wrote your article, so anyway i yeah, 'm like, okay, fine, this guy 's pointing to evidence i 'm sure this is crap, but let 's take a look and see how much crap that they are so first of all, super brain brain yoga what is it this is this is pure pseudoscience, this is magic this isn 't even you know, like physical therapy or chiropractic nonsense. I'm not saying that all physical therapy is nonsense. What I'm saying is this isn't like where something is actually physically happening, but you're just making claims that go beyond, you know, the exercise or whatever (sighs) is happening. This is like real magic. So this is what you have to do. This is being marketed in parenting magazines and to schools, and this is a way it's supposed to wake up your brain and energize your brain and make you smarter and all, more alert, more attentive. So you – First thing you do is connect your tongue to your palate, right? You Got guys it. could all do this while I describe it. You tell me if you feel yeah. energized. Then uh, you ha- okay. Then you have to face east. That's very important. You have to face east. The left arm <laughs> must be inside and the right arm must be outside. So you cross your arms over each other, left, under, right. Inhale while squatting down and then exhale while standing up. Your thumb should be touching the front part of your earlobes. Index fingers behind the earlobes. And do that fourteen to twenty-one times, once or twice a day.
2: This is a prank. Yeah, this you would a-
1: think so, right? It is. It looks like an onion article, right? Like this, you would, you would, pay, you would prank somebody to get him to do this, and you'd laugh at how stupid they are. Oh my but, gosh! But this is serious, you know. That I mean, the, the claims are are people are really making these claims. This is not a not a prank. This was, you know, just made up by some guy, you know, who who is just you know, this is his brand of eastern mysticism he says oh there are subtle energies in the body and this is in this is going to connect the chakras in, in your forehead to your crown chakra you know and the energy is going to flow it's just pure you know life force magical energy so this was invented by choa kok sui mm-hmm. who's a self-proclaimed grandmaster of something he wrote a book about it <laughs> <laughs> and yeah that's it just made up his made up his uh, own pseudoscience and then i guess i don't know why the word yoga is attached to it i guess cuz yoga right. is kind of a popular brand so this is super brain yoga and then you know that people look look into it all marketing so this guy comes in you know he obviously claiming that he thinks it works you know criticizing me for calling the pseudoscience uh, so I looked at the studies, wow. and the studies are such a perfect example of pseudoscience. Just wonderful, you know? Like, it, it exhibit all the features that I talk about for years about what is pseudoscience. So first of all, none of the studies are, are controlled or blinded, right? They're just uncontrolled. They, they're just comparing people before and after intervention, but there's no control group. You can pretty much stop right there. Right. Yeah. I, think I mean, so. <laughs> you're, you're looking at a subjective outcome and it's uncontrolled and there's no blinding. Everybody knows what's happening. And also, like, you're telling kids to, to squat 20 times or whatever. You know, first of all, there's, there's a generic pre-test post-test effect. If you have anybody do anything twice, they're going to do better on the second time. Right. So this is like, remember all those parlor tricks where, Like with the um, the super bands, you know the rubber bands that make yeah they they make you stronger. You could turn around, you increase your flexibility, and part of that is just like put your arms out to the side now, rotate around and see how how far you could point your fingers. Now I do my magic. Now rotate around again, and you could point. Look, you go twenty degrees farther. It works no matter what you do. For whatever reason, people always do better on the second go. That's just the way it is
2: because they want to improve on. Well, whatever.
1: There's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a practice effect or a motivational effect. And then there's also other non specific effects like the Hawthorne effect, right? The observer effect. You're, you're doing an intervention, especially adults doing an intervention with kids, right? The kids are going to want to go along with it and, and show that it works. And then just physically moving around is going to have a little bit of an alerting effect. You know, you get somebody who's been sitting there. Probably kids are half asleep in class. All right, get up and do 21 squats. Look at this. You're more attentive. You know, that's (laughs) the magic of prana flowing through your chakras. Uncontrolled studies are of absolutely zero value. You, you can draw no conclusions from these results, any of them.
4: Well, I, I can make conclusions about the quality of the researchers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. They're, they're
1: all published in these fringe throwaway journals, like really fringe journals. So one was the Indian Journal of Traditional Knowledge. Not, uh-huh. ex, not exactly JAMA, you know. Are one of the research – one of the studies. the – the – in the description, they acknowledge this is a quasi-experimental observation. What does that mean? A quasi-experiment.
0: <laughs>
1: one of them. So the one that was published in that Indian journal said that they measured the pranic energy in the in the subjects, and the pranic energy was increased. So I'm like, that's what? interesting. How did they measure the pranic energy? With and, the pranic and, energy meter. <laughs> what I mean, what is what is that? I went to the methods to see their description of how they measured it and they, and the description in the methods was that they measured it quote unquote using a scale Wow that was that was it. That was the extent of the description. Wow, okay not even trying so I don't even think it's that I don't know what they mean I don't know if it's a translation scale? yeah way? so like like the Richter scale like I mean did, did they use a scale? meaning like a way of quantifying something or like a scale like you step on to weigh yourself like a device scale or a quantification a numbering system like i don't even know what they're talking about and uh, uh, what i wrote about I'm like so the thing is in if that's the case they buried the lead in you know in titling this article the the title of the article is not that the super brain yoga makes kids think that they have more energy. It's that some guy could measure pranic energy. You know, like (laughs) you've just discovered a new form of energy that actually affects biological creatures. I mean, line up for your Nobel Prize, you know?
4: Damn right. Yeah, that's like that's like, a, that's like a scientist like 50 years ago. I detected uh, black hole collisions using gravitational waves. Like, wait, wait, wait. Screw black hole collisions. You detected gravitational waves? What are <laughs> you, yeah, you talking right, about? You know? <laughs> right. God.
1: But it's just like proving super brain yoga by, by measuring pranic energy is like using a psychic to communicate to time-traveling aliens. Yeah, that's about
4: right. <laughs> that's about right. That's a good one too, Steve. Yeah. Oh, boy.
1: All right. So, you know, also these kind of – they're small studies. They reek of P-hacking, you know. They uh, reek of P-hacking. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> just – you could make anything positive if you want to, um, you know, if you give yourself enough wiggle room. So the sloppy methodology in these studies is just, you know, is evident. Uh, so that's it. Four completely worthless, uncontrolled studies. But they had their actual intended effect, right? The – the purpose of these studies was not to determine if superbrain yoga worked because they weren't designed to tell if it worked. What they were designed to do was to provide a patina of scienceiness to superbrain yoga. And that's what they did. And it clearly was enough to convince at least that one commenter, like, look, there's links to published studies. It must be real science, you know? Oh my God. Uh, scary. Yeah, they're, but they're all utter crap, you know. Now, and if, yes, this is an extreme example of a completely implausible magical system, but it did try to be scientific and try to really cover itself in scientific terminology and everything. That's kind of the point. That's why it's a pseudoscience. But there's a lot, there there are many examples of that that are just a little bit more subtle, like the, the claims are not quite as obviously magical and the methodology is not quite so blatantly crap but they're still equally worthless in terms of you can't make any scientific conclusions from them they're not really designed to test if the claim is real if the phenomenon is real they're they're designed to sh- to show something to show a positive effect right to to market right these are this is marketing research not not you know, research about marketing, but research for the purpose of marketing, right? This is just a way of yeah. slapping on a veneer of science to this utter nonsense.
2: Steve, when you wrote this, did you consider the studies published in 2019
1: and 2020? No, I, I have not. I negligent, Ugh, I... Negligently did not read future published studies, so Mm-mm-mm. some comment or two years from now is really going to let me have it. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus.
2: We love The Great Courses Plus. It is so great having the flexibility to watch lectures or stream the audio with The Great Courses Plus app. You can listen and learn no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are. And you can brush up on so many different topics and courses. You'll never run out of things to learn.
3: Guys, you know what The Great Courses kind of reminds me of? It's very much like going to a conference and you hear someone give a talk for an hour, right? Except you get to pick and choose what the speakers say.
1: Or <laughs> the- <laughs> <laughs> well, what they talk about, at least. Right. <laughs> so this week we are watching The Intelligent Brain. The course is not so much about the brain as intelligence itself. What is intelligence? How do we measure it? How does it change over your lifespan? What genes control intelligence? How is it affected by gender and race? And are we getting dumber or smarter over time? Uh, And when you're done listening to that course, you could watch your deceptive mind.
4: Definitely. I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. You'll love it. Our listeners get a free trial with unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures. But you need to go to our special URL first. So start your free trial now. Sign up. At the great courses plus, PLUS, dot com, slash skeptics and then download the free great courses plus app. Remember the great plus, dot com, slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Hey, joining us now is Kara. Kara, how is yeah. how's your night going? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I missed you guys. Yeah, Likewise. what's up? I'm really grumpy because um I had this school thing I had to do. And of course, it's really far away to meet up with the other people in my cohort. So I've been sitting in traffic for not an hour, but an hour and 45 minutes.
1: Uh. Yeah, but isn't that LA? Isn't right. living in LA mean you're in traffic half your life?
5: An hour and 45 minutes is is really extreme. But that's because I was like close to the beach. I was pretty far away from home and I came home in rush hour, which, you know, generally you like plan around doing that. It is yeah. not fun.
1: You have to yeah. plan your life around traffic. Sounds like fun. Mm-hmm.
5: See, flying cars
1: would solve that problem.
5: Oh, completely. Or jetpacks. Jetpacks, yeah. Teleporters. <laughs> jetpacks <laughs> jet would be amazing. Teleporters,
1: yeah. I know, jetpacks would just be issue,
5: really fun. That's what I want. Just like the mm-hmm. fun of flying. Yeah. Iron yeah. Man
4: suits. That's about Oh, gosh.
2: That'd cool. Forget, it,
4: forget about all that crap. I remember, I have a <laughs> distinct memory that mm-hmm. is I'm fairly certain is quite accurate. <laughs> Yeah. In the house, in the TV room, I must have been 11. And I was saying – and I remember getting so excited saying this, saying something to the effect of uh, when, when I get a jetpack, I'm going to fly around the house and stuff. And I remember I, I got so excited. If I said, Bob, by 2018, you're not going to be anywhere near that happening, <laughs> I would have been like, no way. And we're still not – fuck. Yeah, 40, oh, sorry 40 Bob, years sorry. later, and yeah. we are
1: no closer to a jetpack.
4: Yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs>
1: yeah. I,
3: I mean, really. <laughs> Bob so, is outraged. It's like He's the,
2: outraged. What's the difference between now and the Dark Ages? Practically nothing.
4: Poor little 11-year-old Bob. He'd be so bummed, but he didn't know about the internet and all sorts of other cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, So <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you, you know, what kind of balances out. It's a wash.
1: Maybe. Yeah, it's a wash. Maybe. Yeah. Bob, think of all the cool video games we have now. Like really violent, gory video games. We get to kill people, blow them up. It's
0: awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Such a good segue,
5: Steve. (laughs) I love your sly segues. Um. They're my favorite. (laughs) So yes, I am going to talk about, it's sort of a somber topic, but I don't want to spend too much time on the somber part of it. I mean, obviously we've been in the wake of like tra- tragedy here in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. the, the news has rippled across the world, so I know our international uh, listeners know that I'm talking about the Valentine's Day shooting in Florida, where a lot of uh, students and teachers lost their lives. And this is not a new problem here in the United States. And I'm not going to dive deep in to the politics of this problem. But what I am going to dive into is an interesting post that was written by a psychologist named Christopher Ferguson, who's a professor at Stetson University. If you guys don't read articles on The Conversation, I highly, highly recommend this website. I know people write to us a lot asking like where we get our news. The Conversation is a really good conglomeration of sort of op ed and blog posts that are written by experts in their field. So it says underneath kind of the subheading is academic rigor, journalistic flair. So it's, it's you know, it really keeps to journalistic ethical standards, but it's written generally by subject matter experts. So it, you get a, a nice deep dive that you don't always get when you're reading science media from journalists. So this piece is um, called It's Time to End the Debate about Video Games and Violence. And And Christopher Ferguson is a psychologist who has been studying the quote-unquote link between video games and violence for the last 15 years. And basically the thesis of this piece is there is no link. Uh, We cannot find evidence to support the claims that we see over and over in the news media and over and over on the floor of Congress, honestly, that video games – Violent video games lead to violent behavior. We hear this echoed every time there's a mass shooting. Because I get it. People are desperate and they're really upset for good reason. And they want to figure out why this keeps happening. And they want to figure out what we can do to change this. Who can we blame? Um, And one of the most common refrains we hear is the shooter played violent video games. And that is what led them to be armed and to shoot up the school. And so let's maybe break this apart a little bit. Do you still read articles like that constantly when you're kind of flipping through the – the oh, science sure. literature it comes up. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it still comes up. Yeah. yeah. In 2011, there was a Supreme Court case. Um, it was called Brown for our governor here in uh, in California, Jerry Brown, Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association association at all. And this was a, you know, a a suit kind of saying that children should not be able to play violent video games. And it tried to claim that it could lead to, you know, sort of aberrant or violent behavior. I think it was shot down. Yes, the district court concluded that it violated the First Amendment. It was affirmed in the Ninth Circuit. So children can and do play, buy and play violent video games. And the reason, n- not just because it violated the First Amendment, but but the reason that this is cited a lot is because when you look to the scientific literature, and that's something that the author of this piece in the conversation actually did in his own research, he did a meta-analysis, and I'm going to pull that up here, called... The Problem of False Positives and False Negatives in Violent Video Game Experiments. And that was actually published in International Journal of Law and Psychiatry um, quite recently. So what he looked at was different kinds of video game experiments and aggression. And oftentimes the issue when we hear about there being some sort of connection between violent behavior and violent video games, what we're actually talking about is the... The outcome of studies that are not consistent that actually look at what what's deemed as, quote, aggressive behavior following playing violent video games. And these kinds of things are measured by, like, putting your hands in icy cold water, by, like, serving somebody very hot peppers like weird metrics of what we might deem aggression. And oftentimes, they're socially acceptable versions of quote-unquote aggression. And this is something that I've been really interested in lately. This is partially why I picked this topic, is A, because I think it's really um, timely, but B, because in my work, um, now that I'm back in school and I'm working on uh, myself, my psychology PhD, I'm doing a lot of psychometrics and I'm digging super deep in the – to the idea of, like, construct validity and content validity, and the idea that experiments that we do in psychology are often attempting to quantify human behavior through the use of a defined construct, because what is aggression, really? If we talk about the word aggression, it doesn't have an intrinsic metric the same way that length or height or weight has an intrinsic metric. So psychologists have to actually link the term aggression to something that they can measure. And, you know, the jury is often out on whether or not those are appropriate linkages and whether that construct that that is oftentimes invented is actually a valid construct. Um, Needless to say, when you look across all of the literature, I I hinted to this, we see that A, sometimes, quote-unquote, aggression is linked to playing violent video games. Sometimes, quote-unquote, aggression is not linked to playing violent video games. We also see that scanning the literature – only positive results tend to be reported. We've talked about this a lot on the show. When there's no link found, that usually doesn't get reported. And lastly, I think one of the biggest problems, and this is an interesting thing that um, Dr. Ferguson points to in the paper, is that confirmation bias is so heavily at play when we talk about whether or not that school shooter or this school shooter played violent video games, because the truth of the matter is... Almost all juveniles play violent video games. And it's, it's basically the same argument as saying he shot up a school because he wears sneakers or he shot up a school because he eats steak. Pringles. Yes, it's very, very hard to tease these kinds of things apart in a real world application. And actually, when researchers have come up with sophisticated ways to analyze actual mass shootings – and rise and fall in violent video game availability, they've found an inverse relationship. Now, granted, there's no way to know what's happening or if that's even an artifact. Some people have p- hypothesized that violent video games actually give people who have violent tendencies an outlet so that they don't actually commit violent behaviors. Again, there's really no way to know whether or not that's true. But fundamentally, at its core, if you look at this question scientifically, over and over and over, the data simply aren't there to link violent behavior with especially um this kind of violent behavior that actually leads to physical harm and death with video games it's just not there it's just a non-starter yet over and over and over politicians journalists and basically the peanut gallery bring this up time and time yeah. again after and, and and it really has become a um a scapegoat i think yeah. it, it's a way to not deal with the problem
1: i agree you I know. think also it, it's been extended to kids playing with toy guns,
0: mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. and watching violent uh, movies, yeah. watching, or watching cartoons. Violent movies, yeah. Yeah. oh
1: yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. This debate's been going right. on since, since we were since the seventies, since we oh, were kids. Easily,
5: yeah. And it's not like we haven't gathered more data since then. Like the evidence is there, and the evidence, I'm sorry, is not leaning towards the argument that these people are trying to make. Yeah, um, but yet it, it, we still hear it all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, that kid shot up a school. He, oh, and he was playing violent video games. It's like, yeah, what else was he doing?
4: Yeah, like every kid he ate age. drunken noodles yeah. the night before. <laughs> I
5: know. It's like, yeah, he was playing violent video games. And so was every other kid in that school who didn't shoot up the school that day.
3: Right. Well, I think, you know, first of all, it, it fit into the story very nicely. This idea that video games cause violence and, it, you know, it's like people are filling in, you know, information after the fact. To make yeah, it make course. more sense. And and there is something about it that seems like, of course, it would have an effect. I mean, you know, you, you kind of – your brain is thinking about these types of actions and, you know, people kind of do – are what they think type of deal. But yeah, it I, seems
5: intuitive even though it's just not. It's not the case.
3: I think the inverse is true. In my This is anecdotal. I'm just going to say my personal experience. Mm-hmm. I feel actually – like good after I, I if I play a semi-violent or violent video game or you know whatever playing Skyrim as an example and I get into some fights and stuff and I feel like I've I've gotten rid of some pent up frustration and energy. Mm-hmm. There's there's something like of a relief about playing a violent video game. Which I Yeah, I think
5: we need more evidence to to see if that actually is the case. But it is um I think it's a it's a totally appropriate hypothesis. I think that it's beginning to be the basis of some of this behavioral research. And also you see it in other areas, and sorry to link these two things because I'm not linking you to this at all, Jay. But um there is a lot of research in uh pedophilia. About mm-hmm. um, computer generated models of things like, like about utilizing outlets that don't harm anybody to mm-hmm. allow individuals to kind of you know fantasize or act out these things so that they're not committing crimes and uh, again there's a lot of controversy around it we don't really know um ultimately whether it works or not but it's definitely an area of inquiry that's like a lot of people who work with sex offenders think is an important area of inquiry so you know it's, it's 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 not a dumb thought that being able to like shoot them up in a video game would help you not want to like punch the wall in your house.
1: I think this is not going to go away in the foreseeable future. I think there's a part of it mm. is a – there's a these kids today phenomenon about mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the, the youth are doing this thing that we didn't do. It's weird and they're delinquents. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah, he actually wrote about that, Steve. He said that this is – um Quote this echoed historical patterns of moral panic, such as 1950s yeah. concerns about comic books and Tipper Gore's efforts to blame pop and rock music oh, in the yeah. 1980s yeah. for violent sex and sa- Satanism. Yep, oh, and yeah. in,
1: the 80s, cool, in the 80s, in the 80s, it was D and D, Dungeons I mean, and
5: Dragons, yeah. big time.
1: <laughs> think about how yeah. silly yeah. that is today. But to they think were about right that. about that. <laughs>
3: yeah. I've, I've done it all, man. I've done all the bad things.
1: <laughs> when when we were when we and were you young, young guys, when we time. were. When we were, I think, when I was college age, when our when our dad was on the board of education for our town, they were having a conversation about banning Dungeons and Dragons from the school oh because my it was gosh. evil, you know. Oh gosh.
5: Evil. <laughs> oh, no, seriously. Yeah, they just no, they, was, they didn't
1: know what to make of it. And now in the future there's gonna be all this VR porn or whatever, the VR violence. It's too realistic, you know, and then it's gonna be you know, with robots or whatever. Who knows? Whatever the future technology is, that's really? gonna be the, the they really did it this time. This oh, really boy. is not making them yeah. Fun. Yeah. now they've gone it's gonna to be the same thing. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Definitely. Yes.
1: All right, Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy.
3: Okay, last week I played This Noisy. I mean, what is it?
2: Oh, gosh. I have no Anybody? idea. Anybody?
3: Uh, Steve,
1: what did you say last week? The You played it louder this time, so I hear more of the background. So if you li- if you just focus on the main noise, it'd sound a little bit like a frog.
0: Yeah. Uh, like creepers?
1: Yeah. But, but if you listen to all of the sound being generated, you could hear that there's other stuff going on there that now that I know the answer, it kind of makes
3: there sense. There is. Yeah. I think I played a longer clip this time. Yeah. So... This is a uh, – this one was fun because I, I deliberately picked something that I thought there were multiple answers to. Again, this is really cool. I, I just – this is like a reoccurring theme in Who's That Noisy? You know, I, I absolutely hear frogs peeping in that video or in that you – know, this came from a video but in that audio clip. And I'll tell you what. Let me go through some of the guesses that people made. Someone said it sounds like a prairie chicken. This was Simon Dick. They scratch and make a similar call or it could be the call of a, fe- a pheasant. All right. That was cool. Uh, another person, uh, Jamie Cole, said, "Hey, long time listener. I guess this is a, this is a sound from uh, Super Mario jumping." I love hey. how you
5: guys say Mario. It's Mario. so Connecticut. Is it Mario? <laughs> Mario. <laughs> I love it. You guys always say Mario, though. And actually, it might not even be Connecticut. It might just be your family. Because I think you're right. No, think, it's, Evan, it, you say Mario too.
1: It's Danbury. It is, it's it is a hyper oh, okay. regional it's accent. accent. <laughs> it really, <laughs> it is. It is a very tiny. It's a one city accent. Danbury.
5: I love that. Did, did I Mario. say Mario or Mario? You you totally said Mario.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's a totally. But every and other word you. we
4: say is correct.
5: <laughs> 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 no, I just I think it's fun to like hear those quirks, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just think it's fun uh, yeah. when oh, people I love have it. like quirks yeah. of speech. Yeah.
3: Yeah, re- regional accents are very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and without getting into too much detail about that, we think that our sister has like a super heavy Danbury, Connecticut yeah. accent.
1: The, the worst was our cousin. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Remember her? Oh. One of our cousins? She, my no. mother's name is Pat. We always used to make fun of her saying, Aunt Pat.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Like it was really <laughs> extreme. Yeah. P-E-A-Y-T. Yeah.
1: P-E-A-Y-T. Yep. P-E-A. yeah. 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 P-E-A. Was I
0: love
3: horrible. it. <laughs> All right. So to, to continue, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, David right. Barrett guests and many people guessed. Star Wars blaster noise, you know, but he actually said this was a taut wire vibrating, you know, like a fencing a, yeah. a wire from a, f- a fence vibrating. Um, yep, there, that's in there. Another listener guessed a uh, baby alligator calling to its mother after a rainstorm. I thought that was, you know, very descriptive and interesting. And I could see, um, I think I, I've heard baby alligators making a peeping kind of noise. And then uh, Dan Lee said, uh, sounds like springs or wires slapping the ground in the distance. But then he said, because you said it was a natural sound, he thinks it's a chipmunk.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I
3: like I like the variability. I like I like the fact um, that that nobody guessed it right or almost nobody guessed it right. Actually, a couple of people did guess it right. I was trying to sweep the world and I lost this week. But anyway, <laughs> the winner for this week, Phil Ole, said uh, my first thought for this week's noisy was the same. Frog sound that Steve mentioned, awesome. But then it occurred to me it is probably the sound of Nordic wild ice skating. Yes, Phil, you are correct. This is, yes, this is somebody that's skating on a a black ice pond, a very, very freshly frozen pond. They wait until the ice gets to, you know, just the right thickness and if the conditions have to be right, but the ice is, is you know, I don't want to say perfectly smooth, but it doesn't have that windswept look to it. It looks black. Hmm. And in this video that a lot of people actually did See and and wrote me in, to be honest. I did actually, you know, this was probably the worst one I ever did because more people guessed it right than anything else. Ah! But it doesn't matter. I really enjoy it when people get excited, and a lot of people wrote in and said, um, oh my God, I knew what it was. And, you know, they were like talking about, you know, what they thought about it, which is a lot of fun for me. The bottom line is, that this video clip that I got this from had so many different sounds in it from this one activity. It depended on how how far away the microphone was. It depended on how aggressively the skater was skating. And there was a lot of noise happening, uh, or effects on the noise depending on the surrounding area. So if the guy was closer to the shore, I noticed that the sound changed versus if he was on like deep water. Wonderful, a wonderful sound, really interesting. And it does sound like a a mammal or some type of creature or a frog is making the noise, but it isn't. It's just a guy ice skating. There's lots of details about this style of skate and all that. And of course, it's dangerous. You shouldn't skate on thin ice, of course, but that's what they're doing. Um, And it's kind of pretty to see the video as well. So I, I suggest that you look it up. That was great. Thank you, Brian Jackson, for sending in that noisy. I really enjoyed it. And just so you know, the sound that we're hearing is coming from the flexing and cracking of the thin layer of ice that's supported by the water, of course, right? So that ice is, is bowing a little bit as as the skater puts their, their bodily pressure on the ice and pushes. The ice is, is The shape of the ice is changing, and that noise is vibrating through the water and just makes this wonderful, round, kind of earthy noise the way I hear it. So thank you, Brian, for sending that in. So this week's noisy, this week's noisy was sent in by a listener named Michael Topper, Tioper Pepper. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> meat leg. <laughs> meatleg. <laughs>
5: yeah. What is meatleg? Is that somebody who wrote to us once? Yes,
3: yeah. yes, his name was or, I call him Meatle G. It literally leg. was spelled spelled meatleg. And I think we I think we emailed <laughs> the guy. He knows that we bring it up every once in a while, but I my nickname for him was Meatle G.
5: Meat leg. That's the greatest name ever. That's what we said at the time. (laughs) Oh my gosh! I was in. I was um, getting ready this morning, and sorry to interrupt you. And my my boyfriend was listening to. He listens to super weird music, like super bizarre, like usually super heavy music. And he was listening to something that sounded like Kenny G. It was very off and wrong. And I was like, "What is this?" And he was like, "Oh, it's a band called Mammal Hands." Mammal and hands. I don't know why, Mammal but hands? Mammal Hands is the funniest band name I've ever heard. Mr. Balloon Hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like Meatleg and the Mammal Hands would be kind of an amazing band. Go on.
3: All right, so I got to do this. <laughs> hey, Meat Leg, or Meatleg or Meatle G, if you're out there and yeah. you're still listening, email us at info at the guide dot org. Just to, I just got to say hi to you. So if you're there, email us. All right, this week's noisy. Could be anything. Yeah, right. if you, that, if that have, is true. If you have a guess, and please, if you have any awesome noisies, send them to me. Talk to me, people. I'll I'll email you back if you send me something good to wtn at theskepticsguide dot org. Thank you,
1: Jay. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses.
3: So guys, I got my Lisa mattress. Mm-hmm. It came in a, a box. They ship it to you.
2: What's in the buy?
3: It's really cool, though. You know, you get a mattress that's in a box. So here it is. I slept on the mattress. I loved it.
2: Whoa, really? Yeah. Awesome. I did. Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that's also socially conscious. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program, and they also plant a tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. It's very cool.
4: One of my favorite parts is the three premium foam layers. There's a 2-inch Avena foam layer on top. There's a 2-inch memory foam middle layer, and there's my favorite, the 6-inch dense core support foam. At the bottom. You guys could try a Lisa mattress in your home for 100
3: nights risk-free. These are available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This is 100% American-made. The mattress, like I said, it ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or you could try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City and Virginia Beach and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide.
1: And now for President's Day, get $125 off the Lisa mattress plus a free pillow. When you go to leesa.com slash skeptics, that's leesa.com slash skeptics for $125 off the Lisa mattress plus a free pillow. Offer valid until February 28th. That's just a few days. So you better hurry. Do it. All right, guys. Let's get back to the show. Uh, hey, we got a name that logical fallacy. We haven't had one of those in a while. Hmm. You guys ready for this? This one comes from Ronert Park, California. Guy named Bill. Bill says, <laughs> Dear to you, a friend of mine has been posting logical fallacies on his Facebook page that are coming from something called the master list of logical fallacies. One of the in- entries lists excluded middle. As, I'm paraphrasing, if a little is good, a lot must be better. I immediately thought this was wrong. The excluded middle is the false dichotomy. But it occurred to me that I couldn't name the fallacy in question, and it seems so clearly useful. It must be a category of logical fallacy. Thoughts? Hmm. He says, oh, and watch Star Trek Continues. Thanks, as always, and keep fighting the good fight. We, we have watched Star Trek Continues. Maybe, we'll, maybe we should review that on uh, Alpha Quadrant 6 at some point.
0: Mm.
4: Maybe we should go in the past and review them and upload each episode.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get Joel on next time he's uh, local. So let's first talk about the excluded middle. What is that? As a, so we're talking about the informal logical fallacies. These are uh, errors in logic and thinking that pe- that people commonly make. You know, there's a number of them that are described to just as, as a guide, as a guideline, right, about how to avoid making these sloppy thinking mistakes. Uh, but they're they're informal, so they're a little wishy-washy. Right? They're not they're not strictly logical fallacies. They're very context dependent. It depends on how you use them but there are kinds of mistakes that people make. So, the excluded middle, I agree that is the false dichotomy. You're basically saying it's either A or it's B, you know, there's nothing in between. That's the excluded middle. Uh but there's there's different f- manifestations that the false dichotomy could take. It could be that you're taking two ends of an extreme and and dealing with them as discrete entities. It's like everybody's either tall or short, you know, or mm-hmm. And sometimes we do this on purpose for the purpose of categorization. Like we have planets and dwarf planets in our solar system, and there's nothing in between. Then poor little Pluto could kind of go either way. You know what I mean? And it's arbitrary, but we have to decide where to where to draw the line somewhere. But reality isn't categorized like that. In reality, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of things orbiting our sun. But what about if a little is good, a lot must be better? What? That I agree that's not the excluded middle, what logical fallacy do you think that is?
5: Mm, I always have to Google a list of logical fallacies I, I when know, we play right? this game. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: You could look at our list of logical fallacies. <laughs>
0: that would
5: help. We have a list of logical fallacies? Well, oh we
1: have on our website the top 20 logical fallacies, and then in our book, which Ooh. you guys <laughs> all have a copy of... They we do, have we an not. even more exhaustive list of the informal logical fallacies.
5: Is is this – can I get a hint? Is this in the top 20 that are on the website?
1: I forget if it's on that list or <laughs> – Oh,
5: <laughs> crap. Oh, crap.
2: False continuum? No.
5: Yeah. Is that a false continuum? No. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's sort of like, yeah, the fuzzy line between cults and religion. So they're really the same thing. So Um. uh, I don't – the one I'm thinking
1: of is actually not in our top 20 list.
5: Ah, you you tricked me. That's a
1: hit. So it's one that's not (laughs) – Yeah,
5: yeah, that is a hint. That makes it way easier. Is it like a faulty generalization?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, a hasty
5: generalization. You know. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, because he oh, said, yeah. Like, uh, "Yeah, nice find." It's right? Ba- I mean, I it's think it's a bad premise. I think
1: it's basically a non sequitur. You know, I don't think it really is its own logical fallacy, but it's the closest to to what they're saying there. I think is the hasty generalization. You're saying, "All right, so this is good, therefore it's always good, and more is even better." Right? There's no. It's a straight line, right? Uh, so you're just assuming. It's also an unstated major premise, which is that they're assuming a linear relationship between the whatever positive effect they're going for and dose, and that that line never changes. Right, but in reality, most things don't work that way, especially if you're talking about um, dosing anything that you would eat or anything, either food or pharmacologically. Yeah, Little a li- having a little water is great. Too little water is very bad. Too much water, that's also really bad. It's not like the more water you drink, the better without limit. Um, yeah. So there's a false assumption in there. It's a non sequitur, and there's a little bit of a hasty generalization in that they're generalizing from a narrow, one small part of that line. They're extrapolating to the entire line rather than considering the possibility that there might be you might exceed some threshold where it it's not better. Either you, you you could either reach a maximal effect, right? So there's plateau. Things can plateau, right? And this happens with drugs too. Like some some not all drugs, their effect doesn't necessarily continue forever. You you can sometimes get a peak effect, and where increasing the dose does not improve the beneficial effect at all. So like the NSAIDs work this way. The non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. You get to a certain maximum dose of ibuprofen, and then that's the maximum beneficial effect you're going to get from that drug. Increasing the dose does not have a further increased effect. Mm. You you only get increased side effects. So that's because things, of
3: absorption, Steve.
1: No, it's because you've sort of maxed out that pharmacological effect that that is the beneficial effect that we're going for. So you have to know what's physiologically happening in the body, right? Sometimes there's only so much of something that you could do. There's only so many receptors to bind to or you've completely blocked mm. something from happening. You can't block it beyond completely, you know. So yeah. it's
5: yeah the limit so of that. So then all you do is that, that that get a effect. hole in your intestine. Yeah,
1: then all you do is get more <laughs> side effects, right? Yeah. Uh, so don't – but like morphine does not have that. You, the The effects just – there's no limit until you're dead. Until you right? die. And, yeah, 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 exactly. You just keep getting more and more and more of an effect. So there's this, it's called a ceiling effect. So anyway, there's all different kinds of relationships that things can have. It can, you could be a ceiling effect. You could then – you could have an overdose effect, a toxicity effect.
5: There's like bimodal things that yeah, happen, trimodal yeah, right. things Exactly. That so it's you, not you can't
1: assume a, a line. linear effect of goodness for everything. So that's, the I think, the, the major unstated premise there. Uh, but you're also generalizing from one narrow part of the curve to the whole curve. That's, I think, the the most common example of that fallacy. Whatever we're going to th- say that fallacy is, is vitamins. Right? People think, oh, mm. you know, vitamins are good for you, so more vitamins are better and mega doses. Yeah. So nine thousand awesome. percent is going to be healthy,
5: <laughs> right? Yeah, but
1: vitamins have toxicity too. You know.
5: Yeah, you're lucky if you just pee it all out. Right. Yes, right. Exactly. Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Bill. That was a good one. Just for 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 emails this week, just a couple of corrections. Uh, the mm-hmm. first is a quick one. I was talking about remember the densified wood a couple of weeks ago where they uh, yeah, yeah 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 the so, yeah the cellulose yeah right so when
5: <laughs> yeah we got a lot of emails on that uh, yeah
1: the wood get part of the strength of the wood is they get hydrogen bonds between the Structural component – now, I I, I just misspoke. I know that wood has cellulose and that was all over the paper that I was reading. But I just brain fart. I said collagen. Collagen is a protein that's a major structural protein in in animals. Cellulose is a complex carbohydrate that is a major structural component of plants and – Chitin. Since we're talking about structural proteins, chitin is uh, also a carbohydrate that is a major structural component of insects and um, arthropods. Right? Or, I'm sorry, fungus.
5: Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, because it's in the fu- it's in the cell wall of the fungus.
1: Yeah, and it's a uh, chitin is what's say an it acetyl says it's glucosamine a and acetyl yeah. glucosamine. Yeah, so it's a, it's it's a carbohydrate. So that way, yeah, I just misspoke on that one. But yeah, cell, plants have cellulose, and the, the they also have lignin. That was the other major structural protein there. But they take the lignin out, and then they form the hydrogen bonds between the the cellulose. The next one has to do correction. The next correction correction has to do with the analemma. Uh, so, yeah. Hello, what did I do? <laughs> no, actually, I did this because when I was doing when I do post production, I do fact checking, and something stood out for me. when you were discussing the analemma, that it was not what I remembered. Not it's not Ugh. what I learned in astronomy class, and so I looked mm-hmm. it up to see uh, what the correct answer was. And the first reference I found confirmed what I remembered, but unfortunately, it was wrong. Oh, um, interesting. So – and and part of it is that I didn't really fully understand what the answer was and I literally spent like three hours looking <laughs> – reading 20 different descriptions of the analemma to finally wrap my head around – what the hell is going on? So, so, you know, the analemma is the shape that, uh, that would be made if you took a picture of the sun in the sky at the same time every day for a year. So it's the mm. shift in the position of the sun from day to day, you know, as it moves through the sky. From a fixed position. And it, it makes a lopsided figure eight. And the question is, what causes the different components of the movement of the sun? What I had learned in my astronomy class, and what multiple references said, and unfortunately the first one that I saw, was that the eccentricity in the orbit is responsible for the back and the side to side movement, and that the tilt is responsible for the up and down movement. Right. So if you eliminate the eccentricity, if the Earth was a went around the sun in a perfect circle, the analemma would be an up and down. Uh, line right Mm -hmm. Um, so that's partly true but it's not completely true. Uh, so let's break this down into a little bit more detail, Kara, than you went into, and because I did, okay. I did wrap my head around this better, and I think this. this yeah, day, I did
5: not spend three hours prepping. No, it was up. it's, it's <laughs> hard. Word, Most
1: sites glossed over the actual explanation. It Took me a long time mm. to get to the site that actually had an explanation I could understand. Where they, you know, so here's. I think the easier one to understand is the eccentricity. So the fact that we. Planets, you know, orbit the sun in an ellipse with the sun at one focus, not a perfect circle. So, as the you know, because of the eccentricity, the the Earth is going a little bit faster when it's closer to the sun, and then a little bit slower when it's farther away. So, as it's going faster, then uh, it it shifts more each day, and so the loop in the figure eight is bigger, right? So, in the northern hemisphere, the bottom half of the analemma has the bigger loop because that's when the Earth is closer to the Sun. Because in the Northern Hemisphere, we're closer to the Sun during the winter, and in the, and, in, and we're farther from the Sun during the summer. So in the upper part of the analemma, the circle is smaller, because the Earth is moving a little bit slower, so it's not shifting as quickly from day to day. And it's flipped in the Southern Hemisphere. Is right? Does that make sense? Yep. Yes. Mm, yeah. uh, so the eccentricity <laughs> is... Re- but the eccentricity... Uh, is also, because it's moving faster and slower, the movement of the sun, when it's moving faster, it's sort of getting ahead of the average movement of the sun. And then when it's moving slower, it's getting it's falling behind. Right? So you could think the sun is sort of it's it's farther, it's but it'll be past the midway point at noon, you know, when the earth is moving quicker, and then it falls behind the midway point when it's moving slower. And so that's the main component of the east to west or the left to right shift is is due to the eccentricity. So that is still correct. It's the lopsidedness of the figure eight and the the majority of the side to side movement. Uh, the axial tilt is responsible for the up and down movement. Why, you know, it the sun is higher in the sky in the summer and lower in the sky mm. during the winter, right? Yes. But here's the thing: the axial tilt also gives us a little bit of side to side movement. That's the thing I didn't know. And that oh. is the thing that most sites yeah. aren't explicit about. It, it doesn't give you all of the side to side movement. It just gives you a little bit of side to side movement. And and I it took me. That's the thing I couldn't nail down for a long time until one site, the analemma dot com. You know, f- ironically, enough, of course, <laughs> you know, has a page <laughs> where hmm. it goes, everything you need to know. <laughs> it really is. So <laughs> th- think about it this way: because of the tilt. Of the of the of the Earth, you know the twenty three and a half degree tilt of the axis. the The path of the sun is not going straight across, you know the the equator. It's it's going at an angle, so it's climbing up and then going down. So you could think about it as all of the movement isn't going across the longitudinals. Some of it is go. It has a longer path to take, so it takes longer to get to any given longitudinal, so it falls a little bit behind. Does that make sense? It's hard to do this without pictures. If you look at the pictures, you'll you'll see it's obvious. And then it catches up. This is even really less intuitive. It catches up when it's moving across the, uh, the higher latitudes. The longitude lines are closer together, so it gets to the longitude quicker. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's, you, you, it's really hard to visualize. You really have to look at the, the – uh, you have to think about it in terms of uh, the celestial sphere, which is the, basically the projection of the longitude and latitude lines on the sky and, and where the sun would appear if you're looking at where the sun is towards the earth or if you're looking out from the earth. And it does make sense. You say, oh, yeah, it's taking a longer path. It'd be falling behind. So at noon, it's mm-hmm. not going to quite be there. And then – You know, when it's in the higher latitudes, it's going to be crossing those longitude lines. They're closer together, so it'll be it'll it'll make up for lost time, and then it gets a little bit ahead. And so, over the course of the year, you know, it's going to shift a little bit back and forth. And because there's no difference in how fast the Earth is moving in a perfect circle, it would be a perfect but very skinny figure eight. So, there's a couple more interesting facts I don't think we mentioned. If you're at the North Pole, you would only see the upper half of the analemma. The lower half is entirely below the horizon, Okay. right? And the, and the south pole is the same. It's the flipped, right? You only see the other half of the analemma, uh, which makes sense.
2: And at the equator?
1: Here's something I found. At the equator, it, it's going – it depends on your perspective, right? Whether you think it's side to side or up and down. It depends on which way you're pointing yourself. Huh. But it's basically right overhead, right? The analemma would be going – it'd be – it's the same shape, but it'll be
2: directly overhead. Would, th- would the figure eight still be lopsided or would it be yeah. more of a – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All
0: right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it'll be lopsided. The whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing. And the zenith would be, the, I think, the, the crossover point. So here's, here's something else that I never even considered. And how does the analemma change depending on what time of day you take your picture? Right. So if you take the picture at six, at say eight o'clock in the morning versus noon versus four in the afternoon, what do you guys think?
2: Pulled to one side, I thought. Pulled to one side or the other. It's tilted. So it tilts. It tilts. So it's like. It's kind of like as the moon sort of tilts as it goes across the night sky. Yeah. It it goes through this tilting motion.
1: So it's straight up and down at noon. Tilted to the left in the morning and tilted to the right in the afternoon in the northern hemisphere at least. Isn't that cool? It, that so is p-
2: cool. Somebody. It's, it's so hard to picture this. It really in your head, somebody is. Somebody took a. Somebody created
1: out. an analemma, multiple analemmas in one calendar year, right? So, like he he's in right. Athens, Greece, with the same location, and he took pictures like at at 10 a.m. at noon at you know, five PM, and then at different times. So you have basically the the same analemma, but at different times of day, and you can see how it just tilts. Uh, it's cool. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to wrap your head intuitively around why why that way everything would happen. It, it, the easy part for me is yeah, the tilt goes the the tilt of the axis is mainly the up and down movement. The eccentricity is most of the side to side movement. The less intuitive thing was the tilt would also give you a little bit of side to side and then the time of day thing I didn't even think about until I saw that, those pictures, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. L- guys, let's go on with science or fiction.
0: It's time for science or fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You have a theme this
5: week. Ooh. How much do you guys know about water? Mm. Wow, I know s- some things about water, but not all the things.
2: Wet, uh, hydrogen, <laughs> oxygen. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, More hydrogen. Hydrogen. <laughs> Item-
1: <laughs> Here we go. Item number <laughs> one: Water is paramagnetic, which means it is attracted to a magnetic field. Item number two, about 6,800 gallons of water is required to grow a day's food for a family of four. And item number three, water will dissolve more substances than sulfuric acid.
4: Bob, go first. Paramagnetic. Oh, I used to know what that means. I'm just going to go with that one. it sounds about right. Damn it. Um, 6,800 gallons to grow a day's food for a family of four. Oof.
1: Depending on what kind of food, of course, but you know, average Average like American diet.
4: Damn, sixty eight hundred. Oh, that, that could be just either okay or wildly insane, and I don't know. I'm just for some reason like, I have a problem with three. This water will dissolve more substances than sulfuric acid. I'm I'm calling bullshit on that one. I'll say the acid one's fake.
3: Okay, Jay. Water is paramagnetic, uh, attracted to a
4: magnetic field.
3: See right out of the gate, like, wouldn't we be seeing the ocean do some weird shit if it was being affected by a magnetic field? Since the Earth is, you know, like, has a gigantic ma- magnetic field. I don't think water's magnetic or has any mag- has any interaction with magnetism, but I don't know. Six thousand eight hundred gallons of water required to grow a day's food for a family of four. Sure, if you think about like, you know, averaging out between proteins and, and things like that, if, and especially if you're eating um, almonds. But 6,800 gallons, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but when you think about through the course of, of of the lifetime of all the plants and all the water it takes to raise farm animals and things like that, I could see that. I mean, it's not wasting 6,800 gallons of water, just that's about how much water it takes to pass through that system in order to, to create those calories, sure. Water, and the third one, water will dissolve more substances in sulfuric acid. Well, I guess time is, in a, is a factor here, and how and if the water's moving, I think would be a huge factor. Since there's nothing in here about either of those dimensions, I'm going to just assume that since they're not in here, I can say, yes, over time, I think water would could dissolve more than sulfuric acid. I don't think water has any interaction with magnetic fields. So I'm going to say the first one's a
2: fake. Okay, Evan. I seem to remember an experiment a long time ago, a long time ago in a science class in which we did talk about the magnetic properties of water. I don't recall the term paramagnetic, uh, but I'm kind of with Bob and thinking that there's some echo of truth here. And then 6,800 gallons of water required to grow the day's food. Jay made very good points. I think he's going to turn out to be right on that one. I'll agree with, I'll go with Bob and I'll say that the water dissolving more substances than sulfuric acid is incorrect in that, yes, Jay, it's it's a function of time, But I think it has more to do with the actual variance of the types of substances, and sulfuric acid will be the champion in that fight. So that's why I think that one's fiction.
5: And Kara? It's so tough because I feel like the way that the final one is worded is so vague. Water will dissolve more substances than sulfuric acid. Does that mean— If we added up all of the different compounds that exist in, you know, on the planet and we sorted them into columns, does, is water a solvent for this compound? Is sulfuric acid a solvent for this compound? That the list under water would be longer than the list under sulfuric acid?
1: Correct. That's what that says.
5: Okay. And water is the universal solvent. (laughs) Like by definition, chemically, like water dissolves things that's what it does it's the main solvent in almost everything but sulfuric acid is quite strong this one's tough because i don't know i'm gonna go out on a limb but I, this screwed me last time when i did this maybe sixty-eight thousand gallons is not right um also you didn't say i'm assuming you mean a family of four in america because we eat a hell of a lot more awful food than in you know developing countries yeah those yeah, big, uh, yeah, those big yeah. grow said, without water yeah,
2: yeah that's an so that's average,
1: like average diet for an american yeah
5: average diet for American, which means it's going to include meat, but I don't know if an average American family only eats beef all day, every day. And something tells me that that number is more descriptive of if there was a very beef-heavy diet than if it was a mostly plant-based diet. Um, The average American probably doesn't eat mostly plants, but they eat things like chicken and fish, which actually take less water. Obviously, plants take the least amount of water. So, I don't know. I want to say that water is a little bit magnetic. I want to say that water as the universal solvent dissolves more stuff than sulfuric acid i'm thinking maybe 6800 it's probably like 680 gallons of water i don't know i'm probably wrong but i'm gonna go out on a limb and go with the 68 gallons is wrong
1: all right so you guys are spread out over all three that's always nice means i balance them well let's see where shall we begin then why don't we take these in reverse order Water will dissolve more substances than sulfuric acid. Bob and Evan, you think this one is the fiction? Not anymore. Jane, Kara, you think this one is (laughs) science? And this one is science. Ah, Kara is correct. Water is the universal solvent. It dissolves. About that. It dissolves more substances than anything else. So I could have put anything mm. after the there and stomach. it would have been correct. Exactly
2: eating away my
1: stuff. <laughs> so sulfuric acid is 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 strong in terms of eating away at stuff, but yeah, in terms of the number of things that will dissolve in it, so water wins universal solvent.
5: Yeah, water can't dissolve lipids, but like almost everything else, it dissolves.
1: Right, things that are not um, aquaphobic. Yes, or hydrophobic. Hydrophobic. Hydrophobic yes. I like aquaphobic better. I like aquaphobic like a better. Superhero. Yeah. <laughs> My aquaphobic man. So, yeah, Jay. I think you were thinking of erosion or something. I don't know. Just make it, like how much time it takes. I don't know
4: what that. What you were getting at day. That reminds me of of one of the coolest words: superhydrophobicity. Yeah, that's cool. Uh-huh. Yeah,
3: but you think about the here, amount though. of time moving water beh- it has more power than yeah than that's standing e- water.
1: erosion, not d- d- dissolving. All right. Anyway. Let's go to number two. About 6,800 gallons of water is required to grow a day's food for a family of four. Carrie, you think this one is the fiction. The guys think this one is science. And this one is science. Science. Really? Carrie? yeah. This one is science. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to vet this one carefully because, you know. That's depressing. It's a big number, 6,800. But yeah, the multiple sites give lots of of, – Supporting numbers for that, yeah, it just takes a takes a crap load of water to create to food. I mean, the whole cycle of of you know, think about how many times you water a field of plants,
5: and it's not just directly. Yeah, but especially animals. It's the whole cycle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do
1: you think? All right, so there's different lists. You know, on one list here, at the top of the list is actually chocolate. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. To to make really? one kilogram, one kilogram of chocolate, it takes seventeen thousand liters of water. What? What, what? the hell? Beef Whoa. is wow. fifteen thousand per kilogram. 15,000. Yeah, beef
5: is bad. I think almonds are pretty water intensive for a plant. Yeah, saying? for plants,
1: um, yeah, uh, coffee requires ten times as much water as tea. So if you want to preserve water, you could switch over oui. to tea.
4: Not gonna happen. Yeah, bananas.
1: Bananas take uh, seven hundred and ninety liters per kilogram. So even plants, it's a lot. So pizza, guys, 1,239 liters per unit of pizza. What's a unit of pizza? Well, <laughs> are we talking about, a whole pizza? talking about an extra <laughs> law, a large with meatballs? I mean, what are we talking about? Bread is pretty intensive, 1,600 liters per kilogram. Pasta, 1,800. That's dry. That's I guess that's before you cook it. So yeah. Also, chickpeas, for some reason, chickpeas. Are very water intensive and lentils. Oh, that sucks because we use yeah, those all over the then. world. Yeah, yeah, they're almost. So did,
5: you did, not- you read, did you read about almonds? I was under the impression because you know we grow a lot of them in California where there's a drought and they're like. Inc- I was under the impression at least that they're incredibly water intensive, um, which is why yeah. I switched from almond milk to cashew milk.
1: A hundred grams of almonds, one hundred and fifty liters of water. So it is. It is of of the plants on the list. It is pretty high. Rice is higher though, 500. Yeah. 100 grams to 500 mm. liters. So mm. that would be 5,000 per kilogram and 1,500 per
5: kilogram for almonds. Hmm. Maybe I can go back to my almond milk. I do like it. It tastes good. That's what I hear.
1: Uh, all of this means that water is paramagnetic, which means it is attracted to a magnetic field. Is the fiction? Although Jay was correct for the wrong reason, because water is diamagnetic, which means that it's <laughs> yeah. repulsed by a magnetic field. Uh, and that. so, Evan and Bob, I got you guys exactly the way I was uh, hoping I was going to get Like yeah, I vaguely yeah. remember that it's some kind of magnetic thing, uh, you know, but you no, but I, mean, saw I, I, I saw the video.
4: I saw the video in my mind of the of the stream bending. Yeah, uh, next but to, it's uh, repulsed. And, but it's repulsed, yep. Yeah, and it's diamagnetic.
1: Faster. Pretty much everything is diamagnetic. If you, unless you're paramagnetic oh. or ferromagnetic, everything else is diamagnetic, well, which means it's repulsed by a magnetic field because the magnetic field will induce little –
5: Ferromagnetic like a real ma- – like it's a magnet.
1: No, it's a ferromagnetic. So ferromagnetic yeah, okay. means you can hold a magnetic field. Right? Uh Paramagnetic means a magnetic field can be induced in you, but you can't hold on to one without an external magnetic field. And then gotcha. diamagnetic means that there's these like these little vortices in the electron whatever field is generated and that creates a little bit of a repulsive magnetic field but it's really teeny tiny. You have to use a strong magnet to get any kind of effect on water. But that's why by the way powerful magnets magnets will levitate stuff because of the diamagnetic right. yep. repulsion including bob frogs right frogs are, di- yep. are mostly Hello. water. Yep. And it's the water in the frog that, or the mouse or whatever, that is diam- diamagnetic and is being repulsed by the magnetic field. Yeah, it's really cool. So if you thought of levitation, that would have given you the answer to this one. Yeah, that was a little bit tricky. Yeah. So, yep. but they stuff about water. Who knew water was so complicated? There's so many things. I mean, this was just there were so many things I could have included in this one. This is a bottomless it's pit just of a interesting tidbits.
4: Drop
2: in the bucket. It's come yeah, ama- to me.
4: <laughs> nice, dude. It's an amazing substance. It's really, we'd be kind of screwed without it. Uh, well, oh, yeah.
5: Yeah, we'd be yeah, completely screwed without it. Kind
4: of, kind of water based biology, yeah. I wonder how much life would be screwed without it. Just life in uh, general.
5: So far, it seems life like pretty screwed. Water.
2: Intelligent <laughs> life. Well,
5: we don't know yet. Yeah, mm. we don't know of any life that can exist That's without water. That's just
4: it. We don't know. Yep. That would be exotic. Any you
1: know, life mm. independent it obviously wouldn't be carbon based. I would imagine. Nope. We don't know. Silicon based life, right? The yeah. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> oh gosh.
2: every time the word carbon based life comes up, the hydrogen based.
1: Some kind of hydrogen breathers? I don't know. All right, Evan, do you have a quote for this week?
2: It is absolutely essential that one should be neutral and not fall in love with the hypothesis. And that was coined by David Douglas. David Douglas is an American physicist at the University of Rochester. He's also a fellow of the American Physical Society and the New York Academy of Sciences, and he has some pretty darn good quotes online, which you can look up. And uh, I think he drives home a very important point here. Great to have all sorts of hypotheses on all sorts of things, but do not marry them, because guess what? Especially if they turn out to not be correct, you're going to go down hard clinging on to something that's not right.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of basic, though, you know. A lot of people have said the similar thing, similar sentiments, even I think Sherlock Holmes, right, expressed that same sentiment himself.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but after 600, 600 some odd episodes, you know, we're kind of scraping the barrel here, Steve. Come on. <laughs> All right, but here's my favorite
1: quote about not being in love with your hypothesis or theories was by um, T.H. Huxley. But that was, that's a beautiful theory slain by an ugly little fact.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: poetic. Yeah. Yes. Right? Facts rule. You know, your your theories and hypotheses are temporary things that you cannot cling to tightly. Because the more you tighten your grip, the more theories will slip through your fingers. Right, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: uh,
2: a modified quote by Stephen Novello based on an original quote by Princess Leia Organa. Well, thank
1: you guys for joining me this week Surely Thanks Steve Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe (laughs) The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions Dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking For more information on this and other episodes Please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at the skepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.